Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. So bragging rights, I asked Neville a few minutes ago, and when I heard what he's all done, including why he's really on this podcast, it goes without saying. Neville said, oh, I can't remember very well if it was five or six world championships that I've been to. I've won tasks at world championships. Yeah, I've represented South Africa since I started flying in 1995. But of course, everybody knows the name Neville Hewlett as the man who broke the 500-kilometer distance record and of course, the ultimate world record at the time. That record held for nearly seven years, a fantastic flight done on a glider that was not nearly as good as the gliders that were coming after it seven years later. Neville lives down in St. Francis Bay, a place that himself and his father have developed. He now tells me that he's come back from an e-bike mountain ride, enjoying all around the lighthouse where we're allowed to, for a short while out of lockdown, go and enjoy. He's in his board shorts, the weather's warm. He says he's just finished constructing his brilliant house on the canals, which every room is exactly north facing. So he gets sunshine, even in the thick of winter, right into his beautiful property. How's it, Neville? Awesome to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today, my friend? Hey, Steph. I'm good, thanks. So it's really, really cool. It's such an honor for me to have you on this podcast. It's uh, one of, you are really right up there on the uh, on the list of people that um, uh, motivated me to do this because um, I thought to myself, I know all these people from so long ago, why don't I just get a little scratch in the stone, some kind of record of some of the things that have happened. And this podcast itself called Chasing Records, History, Gliders, Places and What's Possible. A few days ago, you called me and you said, wait, I don't do this podcast until I'm ready. And just this morning, you sent me a beautiful Excel layout of everybody that you could find, dates, pedantically looked through of distances. A few days ago, you told me that the 700-kilometer record is completely possible to be broken. I don't even know where to start with all the questions that I have for you, Nev. So let's start right away at your fantastic flight. Why don't we start there, and then we'll look at the history a little later. Tell us about your flight, for starters. Okay, so... When I started paragliding in 1995, and you're not quite correct, you know, I wasn't on the South African team from 1995. It took me all the part of five years to get up to the standard of, of being able to represent my country. When I started paragliding in 95, Alex Lowe had broken the world paragliding record, and I'm just looking at that spreadsheet. That was a couple of years before I started in 1992. So Alex put... South Africa on the map in terms of distance flying in those days, Alex Lowe, Andrew Smith, um, Anton Nordi, and many others um, used to fly from uh, Kuruman and Freiburg uh, up north, an hour or two from Joburg. Alex and Andrew and a and, uh, couple of the, the pilots from those days, Ziggy and, and, and many others, would seriously tackle world record attempts. When I learned, I was in the middle of that environment. Alex had already had his record uh, for three years 
and Andrew Smith um, and Alex were actively attempting to to break tandem records and play goal records and obviously improve on the world record, which in 1998 was was Alex's record was taken away from him after five years uh, by Will Gad Will Gad in Zapata, Texas. So from 98. The pressure was on, and I was very lucky from '98 onwards to be able to join to join Andrew and Alex in Kuruman and uh, learn from these uh, early pioneers of world distance flying uh, in our in our continent. Yeah. You told me that you spoke to Alex this morning in Abu Dhabi, and he was um, also excited for you. Let's speak about 283 kilometers in 1992. What, in your opinion, does that translate to today? Because 283 in 1992 sounds like flying to the moon today. What do you say? Well, you know, the gliders in those days, uh, even our DHV-1s glide and perform a hell of a lot better than uh, the gliders that Alex was flying in those days. But interestingly enough, his average speed for his world record in 1992 was over 50 kilometers an hour. And to give you a bit of a background that the guys that have just flown 588 kilometers uh, have for the first time outside Africa achieved an average speed of above 50 k's an hour. And they achieved only 52.2 k's for their 588 k flight. So... South Africa has something quite special. Uh, we have very flat terrain and we have very strong winds and very strong thermals at times. And uh, that's what makes us special. And that's why earlier you you uh, mentioned the fact that uh, I said that 700 Ks was possible. It's because of that. Our very hot temperatures, our very strong winds and our uh, extreme uh, instability, dry air, uh, going up to 20,000 feet uh, with no thunderstorms and 40 to 50 knot winds. So that's over 100 k's an hour wind at altitude. Now, those kind of conditions on today's gliders, where Alex was getting 50 k's, our, my world record, uh, my average speed was 65.7. The fastest outside Africa was the latest uh, world record of 588, which was 52. 0.2 k's average speed. So you can see that with today's gliders in the conditions that we have, these very special conditions that only happen 14 times a year probably, um, 700 k's is indeed possible. I really like your style and I like your, I wouldn't even say it's optimism. You're speaking completely frankly. Uh, you gave me a big chat the other day about where this would be possible. Let me put that as the next question. Okay, so... What happens in summer in, 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 in Africa is that you get um, a heat low forming in inland. Um, often what happens from normally from mid-December onwards, you get the rainy season comes and the tropical air comes in from the north and you get thunderstorms most days and, and flying distance becomes very dangerous, if not impossible. But there's a period uh, in November, November and December, where you get dry days 
where cold fronts coming from the southwest meet up and you have a Bergwin type situation where you have 50 degree plus temperatures on the ground, you have 10 meters plus average thermal strength. And these are all shown by um, the Valley Brothers spot graph. I mean, they, they arrived, we, after having winched with Andrew Smith and Alex Lowe and, and for years tried for the world record, I'd given up and thought, listen, it's, it's not possible because Will Gadd, uh, when he broke Alex's record, he, he broke it um, in Zapata, Texas, and he flew for, for almost 11 hours. Now, our daylight hours, if you take off at 10 o'clock, you can maybe fly for eight hours, but that is pushing it on the outside edge of, of the South African window. So we reckon, okay, well, we'll get flying for 11 hours. There's no ways that we'll ever do the record in this country until the Valik brothers arrived and they flew in these very special, call them inland Bergwind conditions. It's a Bergwind over flat, uh, over a massive flat uh, um, desert. The winds aloft get to 40 knots, so they get to 80 to 100 k's an hour, and the thermals are 10 meters a second. So uh, you, if you can stay up for eight hours, uh, uh, do the math. You know, 700 kilometers with today's gliders is most definitely possible. Really nice to hear. That's absolutely wow. The very first question I tried to get you onto was your flight. I've heard a lot of things about your flight. You personally told me a few things. I'd like you to just to clarify a few of the facts. Top speed, top ground speed. I think you mentioned something like 131 kilometers an hour. Uh, tell us about when you were going backwards um, after a while. Well, the top speed was um, 127 k's an hour, if I recall correctly. Average speed, as I said, 65.7 k's an hour. On, your, on the track log, you'll see that I've got to about 30 meters over the ground. At that point, I was going backwards at 50 to 55 kilometers an hour um, at 30 meters over the ground. So that was a very life-threatening situation, which luckily I managed to... I was blown up against some low hills and I managed to, to push full speed bar and crab around the side and, and flew into a 10 meter second thermal. But about 400 meters up, 500 meters up, I got a massive cascade, which almost, uh, it, 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 I tried to recover and I lost the glider three times and I, I worked out the fourth, if I didn't get it right on the fourth time, I was going to have to throw my reserve and obviously in 80 kilometer an hour winds, 80, 90 kilometer an hour winds under reserve into a rocky, hilly terrain, you're unlikely to survive. But I managed to fix it and went up to the highest point of my flight, which was uh, 5,500 meters odd. Shortly thereafter, um, got the declared goal of 411. It was really dolphin flying under cumulus cloud streets with bases just under 6,000 meters to get to Lesotho and to the world record of, of 502 kilometers. Wow. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Like you are coming from another planet as an alien, climbing out of your UFO and showing us uh, mortals here how mad a person can be. Just one question. Were you shitting yourself the whole way through, three quarters of the way through, or how many times? I think 
you know, I've been flying now for 25 years. And the reason I'm still alive is because I shit myself every time I fly. So sometimes I've flown with a heart rate monitor. And when I'm on a grassy hill getting ready to take off, just the adrenaline in my system is pushing my heart rate up to just below max heart rate. And that, that adrenaline is, is, is triggered by fear. And to give you an idea, when I flew, I flew once in, in uh, Grafrenet um, with a heart rate monitor and um, my heart rate was almost max on takeoff. And when I got to cloud base, it went below normal. So the bottom line is that there's a continuous level of fear, a continuous level of, uh, um, of adrenaline, uh, which um, allows you to react in time. And, and, and if you're lucky, which I was lucky, survive. Wow. You so survived it. I mean, of course, it gave you instant sky god status. Um, everyone around the world just couldn't believe it. Peter Ritchick from MacPero, who's still a friend of mine and who still mentions your flight regularly, was absolutely stoked it was done on one of his gliders. What do you think the glider, uh, Mac Magus, it was a, a six, sorry. Um, how would you say that compared to... Mac Magus six. That's right. Mm. That's it. So uh, the Mac Mega 6, how would you think it would compare to one of our gliders today, one of the comp gliders that you and I would fly? Well, you can't really compare a two-line glider to, to that three-line glider. And the, the issue that it, that it had was uh, the lines would, would both shrink and stretch. It was virtually in trim for maybe a couple of weeks of flying, and then it would go out of trim. And in those days, we never used to trim them. We used to go for two years between trimming them. We used to hang weights on them to stretch the lines and stuff. So, you know, I would say, you know, you're probably looking at about, uh, it's, it's a big differential. I mean, on today, today's gliders are, are proper aerodynamic machines. This was kind of like a DHV one that's, that's a bit porous, I suppose. Yeah. and slightly out of trouble. An unbelievable flight that you're speaking of there, where, if I remember correctly, you actually went to land. You had to go to land. You were heading into Lesotho, or you were in Lesotho, and there was no going further. Would you explain that? Yeah, so um, the, sun, the sun was setting, and I got to... The last road before the Drakensberg escarpment, which goes up about one and a half kilometers. In the back of my mind, I thought maybe maybe I should just land next to the road. And then I thought, listen, Murphy's law is that if I land the road, it'll be um, 499 kilometers. And it worked out after looking at my track log. It was actually 499 kilometers. And anyway, wow. so I carried on. It was there were no thermals, so it was just a final glide. So I just carried on flying straight towards the berg. I landed probably about half a kilometer from the 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 buttress, the one and a half kilometer high buttress of the berg, and turned into wind and landed with a, a nice walking pace forward speed in velvet smooth air and with the sun setting. And we then I then um Managed to get phone contact to Penny. It was about three kilometers on the road. Managed to walk one kilometer to a little hut that was a Shabin, and proceeded 
myself and the villagers to finish all the beer they had in the Chavine. So, and and <laughs> Penny arrived three hours later, and it was a good day, a memorable day. Yeah. Uh, none of the South Africans standing around at the Shabin. Now, for those foreigners, a Shabin is an uh, unofficial or illegal drinking hole uh, township style. So basically, it's a place where South Africans get drunk and they drink three quarter liter or today one liter beers. And uh, Neville, being generous as he is, he would have bought everybody all the beer there. They would have had no idea why this guy was celebrating flying under an air mattress so far. But Neville knew all about it. So, yeah, tell us about the end of that party, yeah? Yeah. So, so that was it. So, Penny, there was this village had no road to it, only walking paths. So, Penny had luckily had a good four-wheel drive uh, Pajero that Penny was driving. So, she put low ratio in. We had sent some some of the villagers two kilometers to the road to to give her directions. And uh, she came down the side of the mountain to the village, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, absolutely brilliant, brilliant for me to finally hear the story officially and to record it. Thank you so much, Neville, for sharing it with the world, with me. There was a substantial amount of weather preparation that went into this attempt. It's not like today, where Martin Portman and a bunch of guys are there in Brazil with a professional setup. And you can either winch or you can take off that little hill. Uh, Charles Norwood a few days ago was describing to me how he broke his first 300 and 400 kilometers. And it was nothing that he had ever planned before. But he described how simple it was to break 400 kilometers. When you did that, it was a whole different story. Tell us what the kind of planning phase was, time lengths, what kind of lengths you'd go to, who was doing that for you. Um, full credit for my world record has to go to, to Aliaz and Urban Valik, the Valik brothers that came out, they did um, the declared goal record. And, and luckily I've got it there, the 368.9 kilometers declared goal. Their straight line uh, flight, their, their distance flight was 423.5, which was actually further than, than the Bull Gads uh, um, world record, which, which he, he held from 2002 onwards in Zabata, Zabata, Texas. They only flew 200 meters further than, the, than, than that flight. So wow. uh, the percentage for them to get. And the only reason the Valley brothers didn't get that world uh, open distance record was because they hit the sea breeze that comes up the coast from the Transkai coast, three or 400 kilometers inland. And they were actually going backwards um, in the sea breeze. The sea breeze was like 50, 60 k's an hour, and, and they, they weren't making any progress. And they were actually blown like backwards by about six or seven k's against their will. So, thanks to the Vedic brothers uh, and the weather they had that day, and thanks to, to them hitting the sea breeze front, I was able to, to move my um, flight further north so that it ended behind the one and a half kilometer high uh, Lesotho Drakensberg mountain range, which protected it from the sea breeze. Whereas when I came, when I was on my final glide, I saw about 60 or 70 k's an hour, k's away, the, the low sea breeze clouds coming in at 50 or 60 k's an hour, which definitely would have stopped my world record attempt. But because of the Valley Brothers and because of their invaluable nest, met and track logs, I was able to get a, um, a weather forecaster called Dion van der Mesh. He's, uh, he's still practicing today. He's an enthusiast. 
loves aviation and sports flying and he accurately took um, the spot graph from Urban and Alias Valley from that day and accurately plotted what kind of weather conditions would be required. So when I was going for this world record, I phoned Dion up and I said, Dion, these are the conditions I need. I'm planning on leaving tomorrow. What do you think? And he said, listen, give me give me a couple of hours. And he came back to me and said, no, Neville, I've looked at these spot graphs. I've, I've worked out what, what the weather condition is. It's, it's a prefrontal kind of Bergwind uh, condition. And he says, you can hang 10 for another uh, 10 days. And then in, in two weeks time on the Saturday, the Friday is a good day, but the Saturday is your day. So he, he predicted that two weeks ahead. Wow. Uh, genius. And thanks to the Valik brothers and thanks to Dion van Amesh, he was spot on. I went, we went up to Dion and to Prisca. I did a practice flight on the Friday, flew 195 Ks, landed because I knew uh, it, it's, it, it wasn't the record day. And the next, the next morning, we went up to Copperton. Saturday was the day that he predicted two weeks in advance. And the, the conditions were exactly the same. Penny recorded over 50 degrees temperature on the ground. Uh, where When she opened uh, farm gates, it was burning her hands. She had to, she had to cover the gate with a, with a towel so she could touch the steel. And the wind was blowing over gale force. So it was 40 knots at, at height. So it was just the perfect day. So thanks to Elias and, and Urban and the Valley Brothers and thanks to Dion van der Mesh, they pushed the button for me and I had to just fly, fly the day. So it was all good. <laughs> you are speaking quite understatedly when you say you just had to fly the day. Dude, you got kahunas about five times the size of mine. Well done, really. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> That brings me to the next question. Knowing how mad that flight was, would you do it again? Okay, the, the answer is that I would after having broken the record, which was 2008, so what, what, 12 years ago, I would have done it. But the point was, why go and fly in conditions where the wind's gusting 80 plus kilometers an hour and the thermals are 10 meters second plus? Why go do that to break your own world record? Because if you do get killed, the people are going to say, well, that guy was a complete madman. You know, he was going to kill himself. It was, it was just a matter of time. So there was no ways I was going to take fly in gale force conditions at five to 6,000 uh, um, um, meters to break my own record. And by the time they broke it, it was very tempting. And I was very tempted. But... The bottom line is there's a time where you try and break records climbing Everest and try and break records paragliding, and it's normally not when you're close to 60. So there's a time to say uh, it's because of your age, it's now getting too dangerous, and I'm not going to do the north face of, uh, of Everest solo. You know, it's, it's time to actually start uh, take, taking a more backseat. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are getting old and that you are still bold and that you're still alive. You speak of being completely crazy to try that. So that would have put you into the class of half crazy when you did your, uh, when you did your record. Well done. Well, yes. But, I mean, it's, it's like we'd been, we'd been flying and been focused on this. And I'd been, I'd been doing – I mean, I'd been to, to – for two years in a row, um, I'd bought a camper van in Europe 
and I was doing all the European World Cups. So I was very current, um, doing a lot of airtime and had done this world record thing for a lot. So it's what us paragliders do. You know, there's always the element of risk, but if it's something that's, that is completely out of your control and it's like playing Russian roulette, well, then I would never have done it. It's, it's, it's because you have skill levels and you're able to control the risks, but obviously the risks are always there. So amazing to hear this, Nev. You can't even believe how great it is. It's such food for my soul. Absolutely great that you share this with me and the world. Now, Neville Hewlett, you are the father of two kids. You were married at one stage. You don't want to know anything about that anymore. But you have a wonderful woman in your life in the form of Penny, who I also knew as a student paraglider pilot. And now you guys are moving along nicely in your lives. You really love each other. You seem to be completely inseparable whenever I come and visit you guys. You have a restaurant together now, which is doing ridiculously well. You distract yourselves with all sorts of beautiful hobbies and sidelines. You have kind of, how would I say, calmed down in the paragliding scene. You used to be really one of those guys who was always around at every comp. Of course, your flying is still really part of your passion. But I'd like to turn back time a bit to one accident that you described to me long ago where you said you really were lucky to survive that one. That was your surf accident when you got dumped onto the reef. Would you care to share that with us? And Yeah, well, obviously not flying related, but surfing has been my passion. I think surfing in terms of recreation passion, surfing probably is, is my number one. Paragliding, although in surfing I was never gifted uh, competitively. So I was never serious about being a world champion or being a pro on the on the surfing tour or whatever. But that being said, um, still today, you know, I love going out surfing and that. And so it was at my local break. The, uh, you spoke earlier about the lighthouse that uh, we cycled around. It was uh, the surf break at the lighthouse. It's called Seal Point. There's a, there's a famous rock there. Some say it moves underwater and ambushes surfers. I've kind of worked out that it's, it, it, it actually stays in the same place, but it tends to suddenly appear when you're surfing a wave if you don't know it's there. And I knew it was there, but normally uh, in surfing, when you go over a shallow rock, you can get a, a, a barrel, a tube, you know. And uh, so I, was, I went for the tube. The wave, a small piece of the wave broke my face and blinded me for a second. And that was uh, enough for me to to get pushed onto the rock. And I had uh, 14 stitches in my head, my arms, nerve damage, obviously came within 98% of breaking my neck and being a paraplegic. The 2% obviously didn't break, but my nerves, my arms were 80%, 90% affected. So I couldn't lift my arms. And the neurosurgeon said, listen, the nerve damage was such that I had 60% chance of never regaining the use of my arms. And for a 30-year-old uh, surfer, that was not such a great, such great news. So I immediately ordered a, a, a bigger surfboard and was able to, I couldn't lift a coffee cup up, up uh, that was how bad my arms were. Whereas I was, before I was able to surf for five or six hours at a time, I was, I went out after three weeks, I was able to go out for my first time for seven minutes and, and, and stand up on one wave. And the next time I, I went out, I was able to, to, to go out for 14 minutes, 
So that was 100% improvement. So I just kept at it. Eventually, different muscles um, replaced the ones to which the nerves have been damaged. And uh, life returned to normal. So I was very lucky. So life's about, we, we all don't know how lucky we've been. You know, you, you drive along the freeway and you don't see that that drunk person uh, at the intersection that uh, um, pulled out behind you and the car behind you had a head on and everyone was killed and that you were two seconds away from that. So life's about being lucky and, and I've been lucky and uh, no regrets. So there you go. I want to reflect on your story there, Sebastian Coupy in Reunion, who you know very well because of the Suti Cup. And he was telling me a few days ago on his podcast that one guy in the middle of the night, he broke the rules of the lockdown because he really needed to go out. And all he wanted to do was just to go and look at the, um, the volcano because he heard it's active at the moment. So in the middle of the night, he went out to the volcano. He stood on the edge of the volcano and he looked down and he saw the, the red bubbling down below him and it started to rain. So he decided, oh, this is crap. Actually, I think I'm going to quickly, I've still got time to duck back to my car in the dark, make it home before it's light and the police can find me. So he did that. Half an hour after he left, a huge mount of lava came up and completely the cover, covered the area where he had been standing. Yeah, so there you go. So we, we, <laughs> we need guardian angels, you know, so uh, touch wood. They're going to remain with us for the foreseeable future, yeah. That's so cool you say that, Neville. Now, do you have some top tips, some really amazing things that you can give as inspiration or actually as tips, as technique for anyone keen on cross-country or competition flying? What are your things, your gems? You, of course, have the reputation and everybody calls it neveling in South Africa, which is this technique of kind of hawking behind people. And as the points in competitions have changed more and more towards lead-out points to try and encourage people from not doing that very thing. So it seems like the right thing to do. Talk to me. Okay, so when I started flying, as, as I, I said to you earlier, the Andrew Smiths and the Alex Lowe's of this world, uh, Ziggy Borkmeyer's, Jay van Dieventer's, Anton uh, Nordia's, etc., they were much more experienced and much more proficient. So I got a book uh, by Dennis Pagan called Understanding the Sky. One of the things he said was, that if you want to regularly come in the top five in competitions, then just be consistent. He had done the, the statistical analysis to show that that, that would indeed uh, um, let you consistently do, do well in competitions. So uh, in my first 10 years, I've always used to try and be consistent. And that's why people used to call my consistent flying because I would you'd obviously lead, lead, let people lead out um, and if they landed, uh, fly in a different direction, if they got a thermal, join them, but you'd minimize the risk. So, um, yes, uh, um, that risk minimizing strategy worked for me. And I was on the, the South African team for, 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 for many years, but obviously gliders changed and scoring changed and whatever it's, that's when it must be consistent. Yes. But now often, uh, the other pilots, who have my last couple of competitions, the other pilots would be behind me and using me, uh, be neveling me. So it's changed somewhat towards the end of my career, yeah. 
<laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> Neville starts to get Neville'd. Yeah, yeah. Super. Neville, you earlier, when I asked you if you've got a really funny story, you told me a very funny story. A little animosity, a little, a little competition that happened with the Cloudbusters and Andre Ransford Alberts. Tell us what happened with that group of monkeys. Yeah. Okay, so it was just, just when I was starting to get into competition flying. In South Africa, um, a lot of the pilots are, are Afrikaans. Most of them belong to a club called the Cloudbusters, and they prided themselves on being quite rough and hard drinking. And uh, we flew a task in Port Petersburg, which had a long interwind leg, which uh, was actually due to the light thermals, was actually on those gliders we had in those days at the glide angle. It was actually not doable to get uh, into wind to the turn point. But uh, there were enough thermals that we could continue for hours on end, thermaling up and flying, gliding back into wind, and then getting blown back and gliding back into wind, which, which I did for, well, we did for two and a half hours, I think. It was basically just an endurance competition to see who, because obviously we both, had been flying for hours on end in this competition. We both needed to take a leak. So it was who uh, could survive the discomfort of needing to take a slash and, and who could keep going when we were only going forward by about 100 meters every thermal because of the headwind. And uh, I stuck it out and said, and the last person to, to, to remain competing with me was Andre Ransford Alberts, who became our top uh, competition pilot. We landed, I uh, can't remember who landed ahead of the other person, but it wasn't more than 50 meters either way after like an hour and a half into my leg. We then went back to the pub and proceeded a drinking competition that, that then continued till four o'clock the next morning. So it went from a, a brain-dead paragliding competition to a brain-dead drinking competition. And uh, but it was all quite funny and in, in, in good spirits. So, uh, yeah, that was quite a quite a funny uh, episode in my paragliding career. Yeah, and I got I got a from the clubbusters from that time on. They said, okay, the, these English people are actually aren't that bad. So <laughs> excellent. And uh, you did mention that the one big catalyst for a drinking competition, Tian's Kukumur, was also there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tienz Kukumur, he was um, one of the cloudbusters who I love to hate. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of one of a thorn in my side, but all in a good-natured way. And I'm going to ask one last question before we wrap this up, and that would be, so you've spoken of 700 kilometers. You've, of course, kept your eye, one eye, towards what's going on in Brazil. Give us your be-all and end-all of what the future holds in well, at the end of the day, when I did the world record, I did a spreadsheet and I worked out at what speed did you need to fly per 100Ks uh, to get to, to 500Ks, how much daylight did you have? It becomes a fairly easy mathematical calculation. Obviously, as soon as daylight ends, your thermals end. So, so and, and you can't take off before the sun's come up. So, there's a finite start and a finite end to, to, to the possible flying day. Obviously, different countries have longer or shorter flying days. The only option is to try and fly for longer than 11 hours. And I think 
11 or maybe 12 hours is about the max you could you could ever do and if you look at their speeds they've never got more than this is the, the the fastest they've got now is 52 k's an hour so you you kind of going to struggle you'll probably get to over 600 but will you get to 700 no if mathematically it doesn't work it doesn't work what you need is the condition south africa where you have 40 knots that's 80 to 100 kilometers an hour winds at at least 3,000 meters off the ground. So you're getting up three or 4,000 meters off the ground and you're flying in a wind gradient from 60 to 80 kilometers an hour close to the ground a lot more at height. And that's the only way that you're going to get to 700 Ks on our current paragliders. So South Africa is the place. And we have the conditions, the, the, the Met people know when they're coming. And we've got perfect winching uh, conditions. The, the, the thing that's, that's, that is going to be needs to be dealt with is the air spaces. One's going to need to have relaxations of air spaces so that one can fly in that area from Uppington to Lesotho, that 700k uh, corridor. And you're going to have to make sure that you can fly up to 5,000, 6,000 meters above sea level and that uh, your passage through the various airways is authorized. Um, and then 700 cases on the cards, cards. You know, it's, it's fully doable. All you need is young, bold pilots with good uh, technical people behind them. The game's on. <laughs> young technical pilots, you have to be in somewhere between the 65 and 85% completely cooked in the head and have huge balls. One last comment I want to make is about a, a French man who lives in South Africa. His name's Patrice. He's just broken the 307 kilometers or 310 kilometers or something like that in the Western Cape. When I asked him how it was, he said, Steph, there were just whirlies everywhere. I was completely shitting myself all the time. Is that what the sky looked like when you did your big record? Whirlies all over the place as far as you can see? No. So amazingly enough, this MS, this, this, this met condition that comes through on these world record days is kind of a, the whole MS is moving at 80 kilometers an hour and you don't feel anything while you're flying. There's no big dust devils and rough. It's quite smooth flying. They're quite big thermals. Yes, because of the thermals are 10 meters a second, there's big sink in between. So if you're unlucky, you can land. And, you know, I was lucky not to land but an amazing thing happened on the flight two two very memorable things the one thing was that i looked down and there were massive sheets of what looked like um, bushfires it looked like solid billowing clouds of smoke coming across the desert like solid that you couldn't see the ground and it turns out that that was the gulf force wind front hitting below me um, i thought it was fires and, and I thought, shit, you know, there's suddenly all these massive bushfires on the desert below me. And it was actually massive uh, dust fronts from the Gulf Force uh, uh, Bergwin that, that, that these record, uh, world record conditions generate. And um, so that was the one, the, the one uh, um, lasting uh, memory I have of the day. And then the other lasting memory I have of the day is at sunset coming to down on Final Glide uh, um, in front of this massive mountain range um, to see the, the solid, low, billowing, cumulus clouds 
uh, are coming in at 60 kilometers an hour from the coast, uh, I'm about 70 kilometers away from me, and coming in at the opposite direction. So, so those two things uh, um, were part of the met of the day, and, and those were the visual things that I remember. So it, it's good memories, though. Bloody good memories, and bloody nice hearing the whole story from you. Wow, Nev. I thank you very, very much for your time. Do you have a positive message for the world? Anything that you really want to throw out there? Uh, something about our situation or our future or anything like that? You know, I, I, I would say that, you know, I've flown uh, um, on most of the continents, uh, various competitions and PWCs and worlds, et cetera, et cetera. And nowhere in all my flying days have I encountered the type of dry, unstable thermic cross-country conditions that we have on our world record days and i would say that south africa will be the place as 650 or 700 uh, kilometer flight will happen all we need as i said is young bold pilots with a good technical team and uh, the game's on and i'll be watching from the sidelines and cheering them on Maybe you'd like to offer a kind of prize in the future. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Nev. It's been really, really great. Absolutely. And enjoy the lockdown. Cheers, brother. <laughs>